Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn in a minus four degrees Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller. It's a very bright but frosty southeast London. Now, we're all going to be warmed up by a most wonderful, erudite, well-informed guest. I'm really excited. But before we get on to that, Richard, we have some fabulously interesting and important news. Indeed, and very warming news. The Osama Cricket Project, which we featured three weeks ago, is um, opening up a new cricket hub for refugee children in Lebanon. This one will be in the Becker Valley. It will offer cricket to 40 more children there for two years with funding from the MCC Foundation. Good for the MCC. In recent weeks, we've been hearing about Irish cricket. We've been hearing about Scottish cricket. Uh, So it was long overdue for us to hear about the fascinating, though perhaps not as well known as it should be, story of Welsh cricket. And to take us through it, we've got a um, unique authority, because with us is um, Dr Andrew Hignall. Andrew has been the Glamorgan scorer since 1982. He's the Glamorgan archivist. Uh, He's written about 40 books, mostly about Glamorgan and Welsh cricket, He's the Heritage and Education Coordinator for Glamorgan. He's the curator of the Museum of Welsh Cricket in Sophia Gardens in Cardiff. Welcome, Andrew, and thank you very much for joining the podcast. Good morning, uh, everyone. Uh, Borodar. Uh, that's good morning in Welsh uh, for those of you who aren't aware, but good morning. And it's, uh, it's a snowy morning here in St Fagans on the western suburbs of uh, the Welsh capital. I'm not sure there's going to be any play before lunch. Oh, what a pity. And St Fagans is a famous Welsh cricket centre, isn't it, Andrew? Yes, well, in fact, uh, not only did the Village Club, uh, who I do support, not only did the Village Club uh, twice win the, the Village competition, but it was actually the vicar of St Fagans, uh, his son, who actually led Glamorgan in their first ever major game as a minor county with the Glamorgan club having been formed in 1888 and it was in June 1889 that uh, 11 gentlemen of Glamorgan took to the field against Warwickshire at Cardiff Arms Park and the leader was a man called Edmund David as I said the son of the vicar of St Fagans and as I peer now through out over our patio, I can just see the vicarage uh, at uh, St Fagans Church. So it's rather spooky that I'm sat here only a few hundred yards away from a place where maybe the the man who helped to put Glamorgan on the map actually was brought up. And what an appropriate name for uh, the first ever Welsh captain, David. Well, indeed, I I would have thought it would have been a a headline writer's dream, David against Goliath, and uh, no surprise that Warwickshire won inside uh, two days, and in fact, uh, in the middle of the afternoon, rather than uh, catching an earlier train out of Cardiff, they they agreed to to carry on to play until the scheduled close of play, and to play what what was euphemistically known as a beer match. Mm. And of course, in in Cardiff, uh, with uh, such 
fantastic breweries such as Brains and Hancock's, I'm sure everyone would have enjoyed a, a beer match. Mm. Uh, cricket, actually, in Wales, goes back to the 18th century, doesn't it, Andrew? And I think the first evidence of it I found rather fascinating. It was a complaint about, about noisy cricketers in Swansea. What can you tell us about them? Yes, there was a le- there's a letter in uh, a newspaper called the General Evening Post. It uh, was dated uh, for August 1771, written by a gentleman of Swansea. Let's not forget that Swansea was one of the early industrial centres in South Wales at the time. Uh, Cardiff would have been a tiny little market town of only a couple of thousand people. Merthyr Tydville uh, hadn't really flourished at the time as an iron-making centre, but Swansea had. It was a major centre of the copper industry. And a gentleman, as I say, that summer wrote a letter to the General Evening Post complaining about the fact that boys and young men on a Sunday uh, were swearing whilst they were playing their games including cricket. It is the first mention uh, of cricket being played, possibly in an, in an informal way. And we know, because again, in a newspaper dated 1785, the Hereford Journal, there's a notice there for the subscribers of Swansea Cricket Club to meet up by the bathing hut. So it was on a beach overlooking Swansea Bay, and the members were to assemble there and... The notice said that the subscriptions would be the same as last year. So 1785 wasn't the founding date, but it certainly was the first time that a notice was in the newspaper. So Swansea was one of the early uh, cradles, as it were, of of Welsh cricket, possibly involving uh, English men who'd moved into the uh, town to work in in the copper trade and possibly involving several of the young sons of businessmen who were actually also at school and maybe at university in England as well. So there certainly was a, a, an English element in to introducing the game into South Wales. The first game that's actually on record as taking place, and there is correspondence available uh, for this in uh, Dovid uh, County Record Office, and it's uh, correspondence relating to a game in 1783 involving uh, a man called John Phillips, who that year actually had uh, become the MP and the mayor for Carmarthen Borough. The game probably was some form of celebration uh, with his uh, friends, with his supporters, with his backers. The game took place uh, at a place called Court Henry Down, which uh, is midway between Llandilo and uh, Llandovery, as I say, in Carmarthenshire. I've actually visited the site. It was alongside a pub. Like many, uh, like many games in the 18th century, the, uh, the gentleman would have uh, had uh, a meal uh, in between innings. They probably would have gone there as well after the game to... Not unknown in the 21st century, <laughs> one should uh, say. Not, yeah. No, not unknown, but uh, to actually uh, have a, the, the lavish meals that some had, because the newspapers often gave more prominence to the, uh, the fine dining and the five or six courses that the gentlemen uh, ate, and how they would have gone out in those days to play afterwards, well... I'm sure they. I'm sure they all had a jolly time. But as I say, 1783 
is the record of the first cricket match. Now let's get this in order. So the first Richard, when we speaking speaking to Fraser Sim, when did he say the first cricket match in Scotland? recorded cricket match was and when we were talking to Charles Lysop when did he say the first match in Ireland was? It's all roughly the same time but in Scotland I mean it's Scotland officially I think it's 1783 but um, yeah. as it were unofficially it might have, they might have been playing in um, in Edinburgh in the in the early 18th century it's mentioned in that novel by, by James Hogg. And in England it's much it's a sort of the start of the 18th century we get the first recorded match don't we yeah and we get the first version of the laws to settle wages in um, 1744 yeah yeah i think um the first irish um cricket match that's recorded i think it's around um the late 1780s and it's the one involving the two future dukes the duke future duke of richmond um dismissed the future duke of wellington for five runs and then of course the duchess of richmond hosted the famous ball on the eve of Waterloo. So there was a little bit of an anticipation of one of the most momentous events in British history of uh, 25 years later. Can I repeat to Andrew my joke that they used a Duke's cricket ball? (laughs) (laughs) It never never pals, that joke, Richard. No, it's uh, one of my very best jests, but um, it gets the same reception as Mr Pooter's, as a rule. Yes. Um, Andrew, it sounds as though... The Industrial Revolution was a big stimulus to cricket in South Wales, as it, as it proved to be in Scotland. Is, is that right? Well, yes and no, because in terms of uh, parts of South Wales, on the coastal plain, the Industrial Revolution or the opening of the docks was slightly later in the 19th century, certainly as far as Cardiff was concerned. And those games in the 18th century, by and large, uh, much of South Wales was still very rural. And uh, a lot of games took place when people were meeting up at uh, the market towns, where the nodal points, as it were, on the turnpike roads that were crisscrossing the area. Certainly by the late 18th century, certainly there were iron-making centres in existence. The records, though, show that the industrialists didn't really get involved until the middle of the 19th century. For example, Lady Guest, um, whose family owned one of the huge blast furnaces in Merthyr Tydfil. In 1854, she provided land for the, uh, the local cricket team, an element, I think, of social control rather than maybe uh, philanthropy, because, of course, a lot of the workers were uh, going off and uh, uh, imbibing too much, and she was trying to promote uh, a healthy lifestyle, possibly an early example of muscular Christianity. The Crawshays did the same as well in Merthyr. The Humphreys, other iron masters in Tredegar, also did that. But if we if we go back to the late Uh, 18th century it was actually the landed gentry who did actually get involved and in the case of a very interesting place called Raglan which is uh, a market town in in Monmouthshire by the 1810s and the 1820s the local gentry were actually having as it were parties Uh, summer parties for the young gentlemen in the grounds of their house and they were playing early forms of uh, country house cricket so I think it it, in in terms of the the evolution of cricket in South Wales it doesn't quite perfectly fit 
the uh, the model that you may have uh, uh, been talking about then in England. And let's not forget as well, running across the coastal plain of South Wales was uh, a railway line running all the way down uh, west to the docks and the ports in Pembrokeshire. And it was from there that troops were actually going across the, uh, the Irish Sea to uh, quell unrest in Ireland. And the influence of the military was also really important. Quite a few of the early games that uh, Swansea Cricket Club played were against detachments from the Royal Artillery or, Dra or Dragoon Guards. And also, in the 1830s, we mustn't forget as well that there was or there were, I should say, the Rebecca riots within South Wales. And the leaders of local society were quite concerned about the workers' uprising. So to try and uh, boost links between uh, the classes, games of cricket were played. Although some people actually say, well, did the working men actually want to be seen playing cricket with the toffs? And there is another school of thought that in fact the matches that were played were merely a form of recreation, almost a pastime, for the military uh, personnel, just so they didn't get bored before they were doing other things, trying to quell the labour unrest. Well, it rather reminds you of, of Trevelyan's in his History of England, in his Social History chapter, you know, his remark that uh, if the French aristocracy had played cricket with their uh, tenants, uh, we would never have had the French revolution. And uh, obviously in Wales, it, you're suggesting there was a similar political element which kept the peasantry uh, under control. But did was there any... We, when we, we've discovered that in Ireland, there was the perception of the game as an English game by certain nationalists. Did Welsh language campaigners have an objection to cricket? Not really, because the game, or, or there were so many people within South Wales who had uh, English backgrounds. And uh, let's not forget that the whole relationship between Wales and England, from a sporting point of view, was very unique as far as Glamorgan County Cricket Club were concerned. Glamorgan County Cricket Club formed in 1888 at a meeting in, at the Angel Hotel in Cardiff, a fantastic hotel which is which also became synonymous in the great 1970s as the place where the Welsh rugby team would uh, meet up before the game going mm. out over onto the Arms Park. But back in 1888, at that found, founding meeting, the purpose of creating Glamorgan County Cricket Club was so that they could be Wales's representative in the county championship. And secondly, a lovely quote uh, from the uh, the person who convened the meeting, Sir John Talbot Dilwyn Llewellyn, who was the MP for Swansea. Mm -hmm. And uh, what Sir John said is, perhaps once they have uh, found their feet in the county championship, perhaps they could fly at a higher game. And in fact, uh, what he was alluding to was actually bringing international cricket, uh, test cricket, to South Wales. So England playing in Wales. And in 1904, in the autumn of 1904, mm -hmm. a delegation from Glamorgan County Cricket Club approached the MCC about Glamorgan having um, a chance to host the opening test of the 1905 
England-Australia series. That's so interesting. So that anticipates by a century, more than a century, the arrival of Test Match Cricket in Cardiff. Indeed. And what is even more interesting is actually the makeup of the Glamorgan delegation who went to Lords. The, uh, the delegation included Jack Brain, who was the captain of Glamorgan, the former Gloucestershire County cricketer, former Oxford University student. He'd been in the team in 1884 when Oxford beat the Australians. But mm-hmm. he had moved across from uh, Bristol. He'd moved across to Cardiff to run the family's brewery and, of course, create the wonderful beers that uh, Brains uh, still produce. But mm. with him, in the Glamorgan delegation, was a man called Sammy Woods, who was an Australian who was playing for Somerset. So they said lots of really good things. Sammy Woods was saying about the the, the fantastic facilities at, at, at the Arms Park in Cardiff. Jack Brain was talking about the impact that uh, Test cricket would have on the uh, local community. Let's not forget that in 1902, Warwickshire had done very much the same at Edgbaston in getting a, a Test match there. And in fact, Warwickshire had the support of Ansel's another regional brewery. So perhaps there was a little bit of rivalry between the business uh, community in the brewing trade. But the point is, it went to a vote, and there was an equal number of votes around the table, and the, the chairman of the MCC Cricket Committee used his casting vote. The first test of the 1905 series went to Trent Bridge instead and Cardiff though was awarded a game between uh, a combined Glamorgan and Monmouthshire team masquerading as South Wales against the Australians. How different history might have been had that chairman given... Who was the chairman? Who was this chap who made this? I don't know. I'll have to go back to the MCC library and dig that out but um, certainly there were some people uh, who felt that Glamorgan were punching above their weight. They were still then a minor county, let's not forget. And for a, for an organisation that uh, was known for its conservatism, I think the MCC went for the safe bet. But it would have been interesting, very interesting, had that casting vote gone the other way. This marvellous man, Brain, I, I don't suppose there's any family relation of the opening bowler for Worcestershire and then I think Gloucestershire later. Brian Brain, I think he was named. No, no, no. But Jack did have a very, very famous brother. Uh, Jack Brain, a batsman. But his brother, Sam, still holds a unique world record. I don't know if you're aware of the unique world record that Sam Brain had whilst keeping wicket, admittedly, for Gloucestershire against Somerset at Cheltenham College in 1893. Would you like me to tell you that? Go on. Well, Sam Brain, the only wicketkeeper in the history of first-class cricket to have a hat-trick of stumpings. The bowler bowler was a man, uh, a young man called Charles Townsend, and uh, there are of three consecutive deliveries from Townsend, the, uh, the leg spinner for Gloucestershire, stumped Brain bold Townsend and it was it towards the end of the Somerset innings I gather but that was the reason why uh, in 1993 
to celebrate the centenary of this uh, unique feat, Brains Brewery brought out a very nice beer called Hattrick Ale. Uh, all credit to um, Wicketkeeper and Bowler. It does feel that um, the third batsman in the in the trio was was pretty dumb to get dismissed in exactly the same way. <laughs> Indeed, and uh, you just wonder, in fact, uh, whether there had been uh, some complicity, far from me to suggest that, but it was towards the end of an innings, and reading the report seemed to be quite light-hearted just before the close of play at 7 o'clock on that particular evening at Cheltenham. But then Sam Brain, after also graduating from Oxford University, he ended his Gloucestershire days, and he came and kept wicket for uh, Glamorgan for uh, many more years, and his son, Pat Brain, was also then on the Glamorgan committee in the 1920s, at a time when Glamorgan were uh, a first-class county. Yes, so so we've established that Glamorgan's a a very brainy club. You were admitted to the um, county championship in 1921, I think. How How did Glamorgan get on in those early years? Well, we have to start the story actually back in 1910, because Glamorgan had been runners-up in the Minor County Championship for uh, three consecutive years, and there was a a real feel-good factor within the economy of South Wales. And a campaign did begin in 1910 for Glamorgan's elevation into the County Championship. Sadly, though, there was an economic slump. Glamorgan didn't have sufficient financial reserves to enter the first-class game. But then... The next bit of the story, in 1920, when uh, the club resumed, there was still this this desire to become first class. So it was left to a man, an interesting man called Tal Whittington, who was a solicitor in Neath, a a huge enthusiast of, of cricket. His father actually had been a Scottish rugby international as well, and a doctor in the town of Neath. And Tal Whittington led the campaign for first-class elevation. At the time, Glamorgan then were lucky enough to actually receive some financial uh, support. A gentleman called Sir Sidney Bias, who was the owner of Margam Steelworks near Port Talbot. He was also a very generous patron to sport in South Wales. He gave the club a loan of £1,000 over a 10-year period, so that all of the guarantees that the English counties would uh, ask for could be met. And on the 18th of February 1921, the MCC Cricket Committee rubber-stamped Glamorgan's application simply because they had secured, through Tal Whittington, nine home and also nine away matches with existing first-class counties. Uh, The motion was proposed by a man called Henry Murray Anderton, who was the president of Somerset, and it was supported by Sir Russell Bencroft, the chairman of Hampshire. And it was at that meeting, as I say, on the 18th of February, 1921, that was when Glamorgan, uh, as I say, became uh, officially recognised as a first-class county. Their first game took place on the 18th of May 1921. It was Glamorgan against Sussex at Cardiff Arms Park. Mm -hmm. Glamorgan winning the toss, electing to bat first, and Tal Whittington going out to open the batting 
with Norman Riches, who was a dentist in Cardiff. Mm -hmm. So in the winter he would pull teeth, and in the summer he would pull balls to the boundary. And as they walked out from the pavilion to the middle, on the adjoining rugby field at Cardiff Arms Park, the band of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers played the Men of Harlech. Oh, Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Wonderful. And on the third and final day, Glamorgan beat Sussex by 23 runs. And uh, it was... Tight game, tight game. Tight game, a fairy tale start, but the rest, I'm afraid, became a bit of a nightmare. In 1922, Glamorgan lost 13 consecutive matches. In fact, six of those were by an innings and a plenty. And it looked as if, in fact, uh, the uh, the dream of first-class cricket was going to wither and die. Mm. In 1923, the Glamorgan Committee met up again with mounting debts. Luckily, as I say, Sir Sidney Bias's loan had been the nest egg, but that was very quickly being whittled away. But the committee said, no, we'll carry on, we'll carry on. A wonderful man called Johnny Clay then took over the captaincy and tried to do his bit. His parents, uh, his father in particular, was a very prominent businessman at Cardiff Docks. He, uh, they they ran a, a shipping line. And in the late 1920s as well, Johnny Clay formed a fantastic friendship with another legendary figure in Glamorgan cricket, a man called Morris Turnbull. And it was Morris Turnbull, in fact, in 1924. He'd also had a dream debut. He was only 18 at the time. He was still in the sixth form at Downside School, the uh, the well-known uh, uh, boarding school just to the south of Bath. And he'd, he'd created a whole series of records at the school. He was called up to, pl- to make his Glamorgan debut against Lancashire at uh, Swansea in 1924. And would you believe it, Glamorgan beat the mighty Red Rose County Morris played a superb innings, but the bowling performance to win the game came from another very maverick player at the time called Frank Ryan, formerly of Hampshire, a wonderful left-arm spinner, but a man who had a great thirst and also uh, had fallen out with quite a few other people. The story goes that he'd hitchhiked his way from Southampton via Bristol to Cardiff, to try and uh, get a contract, as I said, having fallen out of favour at Hampshire. He'd arrived in a in a dishevelled state. Uh, the, uh, the, the officials thought, in fact, he was some tramp, but they then realised, having seen him bowl in the nets, that he was a magician. So here we have this maverick uh, left-arm spinner called Frank Ryan, plus this callow 18-year-old youth, called Morris Turnbull, combining forces together with another great character of Glamorgan cricket in the 1920s, a man called Jack Mercer, a man who'd actually suffered from shell shock during the Great War. He'd lain in a shell crater for 48 hours, uh, wondering uh, what on earth was going to happen to him. Where was which battle of of that terrible... That was in the Somme in 1916, whilst, uh, whilst serving with... The, the uh, Sussex Regiment, and uh, he returned home with uh, shell shock. He was uh, 
given the uh, prescription, as it were, by his doctor to go out, take, take in as much sunshine and fresh air as possible. So he continued playing cricket. And as I say, he decided to move to, uh, to Glamorgan in 1922. And he was the man fantastically described by uh, R.C. Robertson Glasgow, or Crusoe, the, uh, the great early writer on, uh, on county cricket. Uh, he, he said he was a man who would open the bowling with swing in the morning. He would then cut back to cutters in the afternoon. And if he could still keep going in the evening, he would bowl a little bit of off-spin as well. And in fact, Jack Mercer was the first and so far only bowler to take all 10 wickets uh, in an innings for the Welsh County. That came in 1936, by which time, in fact, Morris Turnbull had taken over as Glamorgan captain. Yes, tell us a little bit more about this astonishing man, wonderful man, Morris Turnbull, who was captain and secretary, wasn't he, of, uh, of Glamorgan, and then... Uh, and a rugby international too for Wales, wasn't he? Yeah, and a squash international, and a hockey international, and the leader of the Catholic Society in South Wales. Oh, a, a wonderful, wonderful man, uh, Morris Turnbull, uh, um, the the archetypal sporting all rounder. In fact, uh, uh, I, I think he set records at every sport uh, at his school. At, at, as I said, downside. He went to Cambridge University. Again, uh, represented the university at hockey, uh, at rugby, at cricket, and also at squash. He, uh, in the winter of 1929-1930, he was chosen on the, the MCC tour to Australia and New Zealand. And in, the, in January 1930, he became Glamorgan's first ever uh, England international, playing against New Zealand. In 1932-1933, though, he also, on his Welsh rugby debut, he was scrum half in the Welsh rugby team that won for the first ever time at Twickenham. And he played a major part in the game. Uh, he was renowned for his dive passing and also his bravery at the base of the scrum. Sadly, tragically, his bravery was to also uh, cost him his life later in 1944. I'll mention that in a minute. But it was Morris Turnbull who, together with Johnny Clay, actually turned Glamorgan cricket around. By 1932, the debt was so high that uh, the Glamorgan committee said, we'll give it one more go, but we're not really sure that we can uh, survive as a first-class county. So Morris Turnbull, together with Johnny Clay, organised a whole series of fundraising events. And it was said that Johnny Clay danced more miles that winter at various functions than he scored runs during the summer. Now, bearing in mind the previous summer he'd scored 1,453 runs... Uh, to dance that amount of miles in the winter would have meant that he would have been a candidate for Strictly Come Dancing had it been uh, had it been around uh, in those days. But what Morris did, using his wide network of of uh, friends within the sporting community of South Wales, was that he garnered support. But crucially, he and Johnny Clay did one other thing, which actually turned the club around, and it was to it was to hire and support 
local homegrown talent. Now, in their early years in the 1920s, Glamorgan had been almost a retirement home for elderly English players who were coming towards the end of their career. There was no sort of blueprint. There was no plan for Glamorgan cricket in the early 1920s. And a whole series of uh, professionals from England were given a game. But Johnny Clay and Morris Turnbull realised that Glamorgan were the Welsh county. They introduced the daffodil as the emblem for the club. They also made sure that Glamorgan played at different club grounds throughout South Wales, not just at Cardiff, not just at Swansea. So the games went to Llanelli in Carmarthenshire. Games went up the Taff Valley to Pontypridd. And crucially, in 1934 as well, Glamorgan merged with Monmouthshire. I never knew that, yeah. Yeah. And so Glamorgan started to play at Newport. In later years, Ebu Vale and Aberystwyth. And of course, in, in far more recent times, Glamorgan playing in North Wales at Colwyn Bay, Llandidno, and also at uh, Aberystwyth. Glamorgan have in recent times also played in Pembrokeshire. So really, it was, it was through Maurice Turnbull that this Welsh identity uh, became uh, the sort of leitmotiv of the club. And with Johnny Clay fully supporting him, and of course the sporting community of South Wales, buoyed by Cardiff City's success in 1927 in winning the FA Cup final, beating Arsenal, there was this this, this real sense of purpose. As I said, 1932-33, Wales beat England uh, at Twickenham. So right at the forefront of this uh, fantastic, uh, as it were, renaissance in uh, Welsh sport was Morris Turnbull and Johnny Clay. You mentioned a little bit earlier on that Maurice Turnbull was killed in in the in the Second World War. Tell us, a, it's important that we know that kind of heritage. So he's a, you're describing the most wonderful man, a glorious sportsman, dual national, international, and then the man who absolutely was the life and soul of the club, who expanded Glamorgan cricket across Wales, a magnificent figure, and then he dies in the war. Tell us about that. Yeah, well... 1939, in his final innings, I think it summarised uh, Morris's Corinthian spirit. Glamorgan's final game against Leicestershire at Aylston Road. He scores 100 in the uh, first innings of the game. And then, with everyone knowing that the war clouds were uh, were growing, in the second innings, he goes in and bats at number nine and is not, not out when the game ends in a draw. Fairly soon afterwards, uh, he joined the Welsh Guards. And no surprise that it wasn't long before he was Major Morris Turnbull of the Welsh Guards. He uh, saw active service in 1944, just after D-Day. He'd led various battalions in training uh, on the south coast and in other parts of uh, the UK. But then just after uh, D-Day with Operation Overlord, he led uh, a battalion part of a, a group of Welsh guardsmen who went across to Normandy. Their mission was to clear the villages of Normandy of the pockets of German resistance. So during the latter part of June, during July, that's what Morris and his 
battalion did. And then fatefully, in early August, they reached uh, a town called Montchamp, which was quite an important uh, strategic centre, about 60 kilometres south of the coast. It was a route centre, and there was a pocket of German resistance in the town, and the Welsh guards knew that if they got rid of the German resistance, then they would have this strategic centre. I gather that they were hoping that there would be... um, Uh, support from some American troops, that didn't actually materialise. So Morris led the contingent into the town. They got rid of the Germans, but then a counter-attack took place. And just on the outskirts of the town, in a series of fields and orchards, Morris and his troops lay wait. Uh, The the sunken lanes there, they could hear the, uh, the, the sounds of some panzer tanks leading a counterattack. So Morris, together with a couple of others, uh, crawled along a hedge alongside this sunken lane with the aim of throwing some grenades into the cab of the lead panzer tank. And uh, then, as soon as the explosions would take place, some other guardsmen then to open fire. If they could stop the, the, the lead tank, they would hopefully stop this counterattack. So Morris crawled along with a couple of other gentlemen, but just as he was about to lob the grenade into the cab, just like he would have lobbed a cricket ball into the uh, wicketkeeper's gloves, unfortunately the gun turret swung round through the hedge and shot him through the head and he was killed instantly. Now a few years ago I was very lucky enough to actually visit the, the actual field where this happened and I also met the gentleman who was serving with Morris who after this tragic tragic accident um, helped to move his body onto a door of a barn which they'd uh, taken the door off the barn and carried over because the last thing his fellow soldiers wanted was for Morris's body to rot there and for no one to know what had happened. And it was uh, a very moving experience that uh, subsequently uh, this particular uh, former uh, Welsh guardsman actually met up with uh, Morris's son and his two daughters. We organised a little function at Downside School where, uh, coincidentally, my wife just also happened to be headmaster's secretary. And uh, it was an amazing experience for the son of Morris Turnbull and his two daughters to meet the guardsman who'd helped to put their father's body uh, onto this door to carry it away from the field of battle and apparently this this guardsman called Fred said that he could remember Morris's last actions before he went into uh, into action were to get his wallet out and to look at the photograph of his children and also just to look at a letter that he'd uh, been carrying as well from his wife. So uh, it brought tears to uh, everyone, but an extremely moving and an emotional uh, uh, event, but very fitting for someone like Morris Turnbull, who did so much good for not only cricket in Wales, but for sport in general. Thank you very much for that very moving account of how a magnificent, splendid 
heroic visionary life came to a very brave end. You had tears coming to my eyes. Of course, uh, Richard, he, who were the other great war, the wartime cricketers who were killed in, in World War Two? Well, the most, most celebrated was, um, was Hedley Verity, who uh, was killed in Sicily, or killed as a result of, of wounds in Sicily. And actually, very movingly, almost his very much echo of um, Morris Turnbull. Uh, practically his last act was to turn to his picture of, of, of his wife and children um, in, in extremis. Um, Andrew, I'd just like to ask quickly about the Welsh influence in Welsh cricket. Presumably, there are cricket terms in um, in Welsh. When did they come into being? And do you know when the laws were first translated into Welsh? As I'm sure they have been. Well, I'm not sure actually, Richard. They have been because uh, with Glamorgan being a constituent member of uh, the MCC and the uh, the ECB, the laws are uh, are accepted. But you're quite right about um, the various phrases. Although there's a an element of Wenglish there. Uh, so we we have phrases like batwir and bowlwir for batter and bowler. Um, mm-hmm. A little bit better for LBW, which is koisava of line a wicked. Uh, run out his red egg atlan, mm-hmm. and um, so there are some um, unique Welsh phrases. And uh, uh, I spent my formative years. Uh, working uh, on BBC Radio Wales with Edward Bevan, the doyen of uh, Welsh uh, cricket broadcasting. And it was always a pleasure on the hour to hear Edward do his uh, summary report in English and then to follow it uh, almost word for word in Welsh. And also uh, I did spend uh, time working on BBC Radio Cymru, which is BBC Radio Wales, but the Welsh medium version, alongside a a great broadcaster called Alan Williams, and also someone else who you may not immediately associate as a cricket person, but the wonderful Welsh rugby coach and the man who uh, led the uh, British Lions to a famous victory uh, on tour in 1974, but a man called Carwin James, who was uh, also a schoolmaster and a a superb supporter of uh, cricket. And in fact, going back to uh, journalists, we mustn't forget, and um, it would have been uh, wonderful to have been a fly on the wall at Swansea in the summer of 1947 or 1948, when John Arlott was covering uh, Glamorgan in the immediate post-war years. Because John Arlott, a poet, as we all know, of great renown, but one of his great friends, through his links uh, as a BBC radio producer, was the poet Dylan Thomas. And uh, John Arlott did write, possibly with a little bit of help from his friend, uh, a poem about cricket being played at St Helens, but it would be a, it would have been wonderful to have been a fly on the wall in the uh, in in the pavilion to have actually heard Dylan and uh, John talking possibly with the help of uh, some uh, uh, red wine uh, as they watched Glamorgan rebuild in the post-war period after the uh, the fateful loss of Morris Turnbull. Have you got that poem? I do. Um, I'm I'm already thinking that 
We must have you back for a second innings, as we did with ask Charles Lysett to come back and talk about Irish cricket. So do you think you could, when you come back, uh, if you're happy to do that, bring that poem and read it out to us, John Arlott's poem, which he composed with Dylan Thomas? about. I would, I would love to. And I also, there's another poem as well, which another famous poet uh, wrote, a man called Danny Absey. Danny Absey, a wonderful poet. I used to, I knew his brother Leo, and I know his his children, Toby and Sheba, and I knew Marjorie, his his sister-in-law. Right. Well, Danny was a young boy growing up in Cardiff when Glamorgan in the nineteen thirties had this uh, this renowned uh, hitter, the sort of the Ben Stokes of of Glamorgan cricket or the Joss Butler of uh, Glamorgan cricket, a man called Cyril Smart. And Cyril Smart, for fun, used to hit balls out of the Arms Park and in the direction of the hotels which lined the adjoining road called Westgate Street. And apparently, uh, on one particular occasion, uh, Cyril Smart hit a ball straight through the plate glass window of the Grand Hotel. And Danny Absey has, uh, as I say, wrote a poem about those days of watching Slogger Smart. That reminds us, Richard, of what was of the scene in uh, it's, it's Ulysses, isn't it's, it? Yeah, it's, it's James Joyce, um, the major, who hits the, um, the six through the, the hotel. Exactly the thing. It's, it's, the major hits the six through the hotel window. Um, that, that's, that stroke, I think, was struck famously in the late 19th century at Trinity College, wasn't mm, it? Yep. Mm. Yes, it's very, it, it, it was a very big hit, so I'm sure. But plausible. We checked this yeah. out with Charles Lysett. He, was, he, he assured yeah. us that this was man, a manageable hit. Mm. Was it Major Buller, wasn't it? I, it was think, made, I think it was, now that you say so. Yep. Um, uh, look it up. That sounds right, Major Buller. James Joyce uh, yep. had obviously embedded itself in James Joyce's memory because it crops out in crops I up don't in think there's any cricket reference in Under Milk Wood, but I'll, I'll, I'll read it again. Maybe there's a... Um, James Joyce smuggled cricketers' names into... Um, Finnegan's um, Wake, wasn't Finnegan's, it, as well? Finnegan's Wake, yep. And... Yeah. Um, I don't know if Dylan Thomas did the same thing, but um, Morris Turnbull's legacy is taken up, as it were, isn't it, by another great figure in Glamorgan cricket history, in some ways rather like him. That's Wilf Wooler. Yes, Wilf Wooler, of course, was also a member of that uh, 1932-33 Welsh rugby team that uh, won for the first time uh, at Twickenham. Wilf Wooler then was a a 19-year-old uh, in his third third year in the sixth form at Rydal School in North Wales. Uh, he was doing his sixth form studies for a third year in preparation to go to uh, Christ College at uh, Cambridge. But um, Wilf, certainly in his, in his early years in sport, in other words, in the 1930s, he was very much a rugby player first. He was in the Welsh rugby team in 1935 that beat the All Blacks at the Arms Park and helped to uh, create the match-winning try. Wilf, though, moved from Cambridge in to work in the coal trade in Cardiff. He spent time as well in North Africa. And then he came down very much as a carefree, jolly-go-lucky amateur and... At the same time, turned out occasionally for Glamorgan. He was playing his club cricket for St Fagans, and he turned out uh, occasionally for Glamorgan. He produced a superb all-round performance in 1939 as Glamorgan 
beat the West Indian tourists. Then, of course, the war intervened. For Wilf, though, it was a horrendous experience. He was a member of the anti-aircraft uh, brigade, went out to the Far East and spent three years in a POW camp, uh, did time on the notorious death railway. He was in Changi as well. Uh, he survived. His strength of character, his fortitude, etc., uh, saw him through when he came back. Can I just pausing briefly, did, was he? He so said, "Was he there with Changi with E. W. Swanson, who was also that was the camp that E. W. Swanson was at, wasn't it?" I believe it. I believe it may have been. Was he one of the famous famous people who borrowed E. W. Swanson's uh, dog-eared wisdom? He used to lend, lend them out in Changi camp, didn't he? For you know, to a fellow prisoners, they could have four or five hours each, and then you know, they had to return it, and somebody else would. Yeah, I, I, what I do know is that Wilf actually uh, was the chess champion uh, on several occasions in uh, in Changi, and maybe he was honing his uh, his tactical uh, nous uh, whilst uh, playing chess uh, uh, in those extreme and uh, dreadful. He must uh, have had conversations about cricket with Swanton. I'm guessing long ones. I'm I'm guessing they may have, but in fact, Wilf did move around. It wasn't just in Changi, he was in other camps as well. So uh, I was very lucky in the 1990s to uh, be asked to write a biography of Wilf Wooler. So uh, even though I was teaching at the time in, uh, in Somerset, uh, his home was not too far away from my from my mother's house in in North Cardiff. So uh, I would combine uh, a family visit with going round to see Wilf, and I left uh, a tape recorder with him so he could talk into the tape and uh, reminisce about his career and his life. Uh, I still have the tapes, but. Uh, I know that uh, when he was talking about Changi, the, the tapes would stop and start. And then on occasions talking with Enid, his uh, lovely wife, Enid would say, Andrew, please be gentle with Wilf. He still wakes up in the middle of the night screaming and crying about what he saw. And he doesn't like talking about it. So I had to, uh, I had to adhere to uh, the family's wishes. It's interesting, though, that when he came back from the war, he was a totally different character. As I said, before the war, he'd been this happy-go-lucky amateur. He came back. He was really a professional in attitude, even though he was uh, an amateur uh, by name, Mr. Wilfred Wooder. In 1946, he agreed to help out uh, uh, Glamorgan. In fact, his job in the coal trade had disappeared. His life uh, outside cricket has, was uh, in tatters as well. So to keep him together, he decided to uh, help out Glamorgan as an honorary secretary. He led a campaign, a fundraising campaign, to uh, improve the facilities at uh, the Arms Park and various other grounds. And Johnny Clay, who now was nearer 50 than 40, agreed to lead Glamorgan in 1946 and to groom the next captain. So during the summer of 1946, Wilf learnt the trade, as it were, from Johnny Clay. And then in 1947, Wilf took over. And the one thing that Wilf actually brought to Glamorgan cricket at the time was an emphasis on fielding. Before the war, 
Uh, there'd been a lot of quite portly and aged amateurs who'd been in the slips and uh, catches would have been dropped. Bowlers like uh, Jack Mercer would have said, oh, well, well stopped, sir, <laughs> rather than uh, uh, whinging too much about yet another drop catch. Uh, one wonders when Jack Mercer ended up with 1,460 first-class wickets, whether that would have been actually over 2,000 wickets had he been playing when uh, Wilf Wooler was in charge and had a far better bowling and fielding unit. Wilf p- positioned himself at short leg, uh, or at forward short leg. Wilf was not averse to having a little chat with the mm. batsman, letting <laughs> them know no. what he thought. Um, he would uh, he would have a little chat with the great Hayden Davis, Glamorgan's wonderful wicketkeeper as well. And there was another fantastic man, another great sportsman, all-round sportsman, called Alan Watkins, who occupied the leg slip or leg gully position. Alan had, was, had been a professional footballer with Plymouth Argyle and uh, later with other clubs as well. But he was a cricketer first and foremost, a wonderfully uh, adept uh, fielder. Later, of course, we would see Peter Walker in that position. Phil Clift and Jim Pleece also occupied that position. Arnold Dyson would have been at first slip in the immediate post-war years. So Glamorgan had a very potent leg-side trap, and Wilf told the bowlers to focus on bowling at leg stump. I'm not saying it was body line, it certainly wasn't that, but the emphasis was very much on the leg stump with this predatory ring of close catchers. And of course, the rest is history. 1948, Glamorgan win the county championship for the first time. And during the summer of 1948, primarily because Alan Watkins had been called up into the squad for the Ashes uh, tests, and because of injuries to the likes of Phil Clift, Wilf asked his old friend Johnny Clay whether he'd come out of retirement and just help out. Glamorgan at the time needed uh, three more victories to be able to uh, win the title. So there was a victory against Northamptonshire at Cardiff. Then a famous game where Glamorgan beat Surrey inside two days at the Arms Park, with Johnny Clay going through the much vaunted Surrey lineup like a red hot knife through butter. And then it was down to Bournemouth uh, towards the end of August 1948. As I say, one more victory would clinch the title for Glamorgan. After 10 minutes on the first day, though, the heavens opened at Bournemouth and uh, Glamorgan batting first. Uh, One can only imagine the hordes of uh, Glamorgan fans who'd gone down to Bournemouth, what they must have thought on that Saturday night. Probably the pews in the local churches would have been full on the Sunday with all the good, true, uh, church-going Welshmen praying for a sunny day on Monday. Well, their prayers were answered, and on the Monday it dawned clear and bright, Emrys Davis going out to uh, bat, getting a lot of runs with Arnold Dyson and also Gilbert Parkhouse. Willie Jones contributed as well. It allowed Wilf Wooler to declare, and Hampshire were then bowled out twice. And a wonderful story on that final afternoon of the game, 
sometime around about quarter to three in the afternoon, where Glamorgan needed one more wicket. Hampshire were nine down. Bowling was Johnny Clay, the great off-spinner. Now, as luck would have it, or maybe it was coincidence, one of the umpires, and standing at Johnny Clay's end, was the pre-war Glamorgan veteran, Di Davis. Now, Di always wore his Glamorgan sweater, and he wore a red tie, uh, or he wore a tie with a Welsh dragon on it. He was a very proud and fiercely loyal Welshman. But of course he was an umpire, completely impartial. And he was standing at the end where Johnny Clay was bowling. And the story goes, perfectly true story, which has been verified by the players involved at the time. Johnny Clay sent a delivery down. It hit the pads of Charlie Knott, the Hampshire number 11. Johnny span round. He hadn't even completed the appeal how's that he just got the her out and Di Davis proudly standing there raised his finger and he said the immortal words that's out and we've won the championship (laughs) (laughs) and remarkably there are photographs of the Glamorgan team assembling on the pavilion balcony at Dean Park in Bournemouth after the, the victory who should be standing celebrating with his former colleagues but Di Davis. Glamorgan <laughs> then at the end of the season went on a celebratory tour to Pembrokeshire. They always went on the various end-of-season tours. And who should join in with Glamorgan on the end-of-season tours in Pembrokeshire? <laughs> Di Davis. Well, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful story. Lovely. It's slightly, slightly different conventions for umpires in those days. Um, well, I yeah. heard from Hayden Davis, who was keeping wicket, that it was absolutely plumb in front, and it would have taken out all three, uh, all three stumps. Of course, mm. it, it it would have been umpires' call on DRS. I'm sure. I can't tell you how much I've in, we've enjoyed listening to you, uh, and we've got as far uh, along the story t- as nineteen. 19- 48 there's a long way to go in the story of of welsh cricket we've run out of time today i, I we you would honor us enormously if you would come back for at least one more innings andrew but thank you very much for today indeed i'd like to echo that andrew and there's is indeed so much more we could go through but uh for now andrew thank you very very much for joining us my pleasure. Diochan uh, Varian, thank you very much. And I'm really looking forward to uh, to coming back and especially talking about uh, another great Glamorgan cricketer who I haven't mentioned uh, today, uh, Don Shepherd, who, oh, of yes. course, took 2,218 wickets, yet never played for England in a test match. Neither did Alan Jones. And, of course, I'm sure next time we can talk about their fantastic achievements. And, of course... It would be very fitting because, of course, Glamorgan this year in the summer of 2021 celebrating their 100th anniversary of achieving first-class status. Absolutely. My thanks to you both. We'll have you back in time for the county championship season. Uh, But in the meantime, it's goodbye from me, Peter Oborn, in a frozen Wiltshire. Uh, Goodbye from me, Richard Heller, in a sunny but bleak south-east London. (laughs) 